For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Heim. This week, our guest is renowned author, blogger, and socio-political commentator, Molly Jong Fast. And remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Magic Spoon and Chili Sleep, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting the sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James Carville, um, uh, first of all, uh, Happy New Year for the second straight week. Uh, uh, you're, you're, you're pleased an SEC team uh, won the national championship. Of course, uh, that was the only option, but it, it, it was a good game. Uh, let me turn to politics. Biden made a big pitch for voting rights legislation in Atlanta speech this week. I think it's a little belated, but I think it was powerful and it was effective. It was unfortunate that Stacey Abrams and a few um, uh, civil rights leaders down there decided to, to stiff the speech. I, I think that was a mistake, but it, but it was good. The right to vote is the most, you know, there it, it's precious to a democracy and it is under threat. It is being targeted. And it's, 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 it's really remarkable uh, that the Republican Party that used to be pretty good on civil rights, Bob Dole voted for every civil rights bill during the entire 36 years he was in Congress, uh, and now there is unified opposition to this. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm not sure if Joe Manchin is going to come through at the end, as I predicted all along he would. But I'll tell you, the stakes are humongous. Wow. I mean, they're bigger than humongous, and the reason is is that you're going to see what's going to happen on the left side of the equation, the equivalent to what, what you saw elsewhere. People are just going to be so unbelievably frustrated. I mean, look, the Democrats won seven out of the eight popular votes. I mean, the, the, the country has a decided uh, democratic lean to it. And through sorting and, and the, the U.S. Constitution, it just gives these some voters way more power than others, and most of those are Republican voters, and now they don't want to take even that away. And it's just the, the, the end result could be just awful, just awful. Well, a simple question for those who say and write that oh, there really isn't much voter suppression. It really doesn't matter. We had a lot of people vote last time, which we did. Uh, the ballots were very accessible uh, in November of 2020, which they were. There's a simple question. Why then? Have these Republican legislatures in Georgia, in Texas, and in Florida, and in Iowa, and elsewhere? Why have they acted this whole string of uh, of voter suppression laws? If, the, if everything was up on the up and up in November 2020, it was an honest election. There was no fraud. So why these bills? There's a simple answer, isn't there? It's pretty simple. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the reporters will tell you. They'll tell them right. To, they tell reporters, if we don't do this, we'll be out of power. It's our way to stay. 
I mean, there's, there's, it, it, it's awful, but, but the, the societal consequences of this, I mean, the electoral consequences could be draconian. The societal consequences could be worse. I mean, if people mm-hmm. feel like they don't have a voice in the direction of the country, then, they, then the result of that could be, you know, things that we don't, we don't like or we don't want to contemplate. But yeah. people are just not going to take it after a while. And particularly among black people, you know, right to vote to them is, you know, people like us, we just kind of take it for granted. I mean, that's embedded in their culture and their history and justifiably so. And immigrants that come here when they're citizens, they want to participate in our democracy, and they should. It's the highest form of citizenry you're going to have. You've been washed in the blood. You wanted to be here. They're going to try to keep you from voting. It's, I, I, I worry about more than I obviously worry about the election, but I worry about more than that. Yeah, I agree. And we tend to forget that it was less than 60 years ago where in a number of states, very few blacks were even able to vote, uh, much <laughs> less. Uh, so, uh, you know, it took a lot of uh, took a lot of bloodshed, took a lot of political courage, including from a lot of Republicans back then, you know, as well right. as Democrats, Lyndon Johnson and, uh, and, and Jack Kennedy earlier. But uh, that wasn't that long ago. And that was, uh, what, James? That was almost 100 years after the Civil War. <laughs> it, was, uh, so. it was long enough ago, but from 1965 to now, you know, in history's time is a pretty short period of time. Yeah. And well, I, I, let's hope that Joe Manchin stays true to his word and comes through with something because to say that you can't carve out uh, the filibuster rules or come up with something to... Make sure that all you're asking for democracy gets carved. Yes. All you're asking for is a vote. No one's saying a guarantee vote. No one. If if it loses 51, 49, it loses. But let the senators vote. It's that pure and simple. Up to you, Joe Manchin, uh, because, you know, the Republicans uh, are all in the tank uh, against voting rights now. James, one other uh, issue here on the Biden front inflation. Um, It's bad. Uh, but I think there are signs that it may get better. And I think one of our favorite columnists, Catherine Rampell, uh, who is almost always right, said the White House was misguided to try to go and say this is all about corporate greed and make that a big issue now. Instead, what Biden and his aides should be talking about is how good the economy is, all the good things that are happening, and saying that we're going to get inflation under control. It may take uh, a year or two, but it's going to get better. And by the way, he has three vacancies right now on the Federal Reserve, which is central to what happens, and he ought to appoint three good people instantly. Don't wait around for weeks or months. You know, the markets sure are not very upset about the prospect of inflation. And I saw Jamie Dimon, if anything, he was as bullish, if not more bullish than Roger Altman is or Catherine Rampell. Right? I mean, these guys access to pretty good research. I mean, any it's almost unanimous it's going to be a rip-roaring economy in 2022. And I know the inflation number was scary. Let's wait and see because the markets are just not – are just pretty stable. They don't see this as an issue. And the markets are huge, yep. are huge. Well, I think for other reasons, but this is not freaking them out. If inflation does tamp down, you know, it's still going to be, you know, 
three and a half, four percent next fall, which is higher than we want it to be. But if you have a booming economy like Roger and others describe, that's that's something on balance is a plus thing you ought to talk about. Go ahead, Jim. We typically have had really low inflation in this country, but this entire century, right? And the Fed wanted to try to get it to two percent. There was the kind of idea we couldn't they couldn't get it to there. Wait, everything you know, everything was flat for our employees. I think three and a half percent inflation would might be even good, right? It's a lot just, better than five or six, but uh, you know, yeah, if you have I, a, I don't, I mean, if real wages are keeping up or ahead of inflation, and people are and their jobs uh, are plentiful out there, and and you uh, don't need a used car, right? The average right. used car is forty seven thousand dollars now. Oh come on! Oh no! Really? So yes. You're buying it. Yeah, I mean, you're buying a used Mercedes, aren't you? I, I, again, I, it was on calculated risk, which is pretty freaking good sight. Bill McBride. Yeah. But, but I, I, a lot of that is priced in, and a lot of it was you had this sort of Omicron come at the same time you had the holidays, which a lot of people working in the supply chain and stuff, right. they, they were not in the world. I mean, I'm, I'm just not that – I mean, I'm obviously concerned about it. It, it – it, you know, everybody's you can read read all about it. Special seven percent inflation. I, I for some reason, really smart people are just not that jacked up about this. Well, unlike my wife, I've never paid forty seven thousand dollars for a new car, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've got I've got sticker shock just listening to you. I'll tell you what worries me more than inflation, James, and that is. I could be wrong on that, but I swear I read it. But yeah, I, no, I, I, but, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take it to the bank. Well, whether the figure is absolutely accurate or not, the point I'm sure is is right, right on. What worries me more than inflation uh, for the Democrats is is the crazy left. They won't go away. The latest is New York City is going to allow non-citizens to vote. Now, I, I, I want to tell you something, James. I really there are very few issues that I feel as passionate about as immigration, immigration reform. It ought to be a pathway to citizenship. It ought to be clear cut. It ought to be clean. It ought to be as short as possible. Dreamers ought to become citizens, you know, right away. Uh, we ought to stop uh, torturing people on on the on the borders. But you know, the idea of non-citizens voting is insane anywhere, and it's just a gift. To Republicans, yeah, there's some history, that, but there's somebody somewhere in some coastal city that has got an algorithm for a bad idea generator. You know, like defund the police. You know, non-citizens can vote. That kind of stuff. And they, you know, I wonder if they even realize. The damage they're doing, and a kind of twenty-five percent of me wonders if they're not happy about the damage that they're doing. Yeah. If you talk to some of these real lefties long enough, they'll tell you how much they hate Democrats. Yeah, and yeah. it was disappointing to see the new mayor of New York City. He didn't initiate it; he didn't propose it, but he went along with it. And uh, I, I think he's made a mistake, certainly for his party, um, and and probably for you. Look, I'm sympathetic to the notion of health care coverage for undocumented workers. I, I don't want people to get sick. Uh, I think that hurts others, hurts society. But voting is different. And uh, it, it, that, that, uh, that list of the worst ideas, I'm sure this is in the top five. The timing couldn't have been worse. Yeah, I, mean, it's some, awful. I understand there's some history of that. 
But it just it's just not what you want. And you know that Fox is going to take it and they're going to run with it like crazy. It's going to be part of the whole thing. Yeah. The, the loony left. And it's some of it is just timing. I mean, you know, we, we just got to let got to let things settle a little bit here. Well, I agree. Um, James, you remember, I don't know, a year or so ago we used to do, this was when Trump was in office, so it was more than a year ago, we used to have this um, thing about how low can you go? You know, we'd <laughs> talk about that, that river down in Louisiana that, that, yeah. that didn't, that the was The Chafalaya River. Yeah. yeah. The, well, the river I, with no I, bottom. I'm going to reprise that every now and then, right. uh, but I'm going to know how low can a congressional Republican go? <laughs> and this week I have three, the, the bronze medal. The bronze medal goes to Lindsey Graham, uh, or as Christopher Buckley uh, calls him, Squiggly Lee Biscuit, uh, expressing shock, shock over Biden politically polarizing January 6th. This is the Trump lackey who tried to get the Georgia Secretary of State to kind of look at maybe he can find more votes for Trump, or at least brought some pressure on him to do that, and now says that it's absolutely outrageous that Biden is trying to politically polarize uh, the January 6th. The, 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 the silver medal, the silver medal goes to Rand Paul. He's a quack doctor. He is a quack senator. And he's raising money, we found out this week, off of his quack attacks on Anthony Fauci. So he gets this. So you ask, okay, fine, these are two really strong contenders. I mean, who's going to get the gold? Who's the Usain Bolt uh, of this group? It's harder. But you know something? It's, it's easy. It goes to Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, who did the full grovel. No, 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 he did the double full grovel to Tucker Carlson. Cruz apologizing for calling the January 6th violent mob terrorist. Now, you know, if there was ever, ever a, 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 a more, a bigger grovel than that, then I haven't seen it. And if Ted Cruz, by the way, if there had been blacks there, can you imagine what Ted Cruz would have said? But James, let me say there has to be a to be sure here. This is, this is the guy, after all, Senator Cruz, who bowed and scraped to Trump after Trump said that Cruz's father was complicit in the assassination of JFK and that his wife was ugly. So if you don't stand up for your dad or your wife, why would you expect him to stand up to Tucker Carlson? Well, it, it goes a bit deeper than that. So if, if my daughters or your, daughter, your, your children, if, if, if somebody attacked their grandfather for being a murderer oh. and attacked their mother for being a hag and their daddy groveled to them, how do, how do you sit down at the – how do you come home and sit down at the same dinner table with your own children Looking at you, knowing what a weak, pliable, groveling human being you are, I, 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 I really, I, 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 I don't, I don't get it. And, and y'all just find that Rand Paul is, is more than anyone. He's just an asshole in every kind of asshole way you can be. You know it all. There's that, you know. I, I. I I couldn't be around that guy for 30 seconds. It's and, one of uh, well, few, Lindsey Graham is just what he's, he is. He's just kind of pathetic. He's, he's just kind of a weak little guy who, uh, right. you know, he's once John McCain left, he's, he lost right. any compass that he had, um, you right. know. But uh, I agree. And I, I listen, I think under normal circumstances, Rand Paul – you know, would have been a gold medal winner, and I'm, um, you know, I. But 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 you just can't top Ted Cruz. I, I, I your order's good. It's good. 
hey, it's the new year, and Magic Spoon cereal is perfect for meeting your goals. Whether it's eating healthier or saving more time in your morning routine, you'll love the flavor as much as we do, and it's so good you can eat it all day, every day, any day. So get going with Magic Spoon. Now, you know, James, zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's only 140 calories a serving. It's also keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. Now, you can build your own box and customize it to make your own custom bundle with Magic Spoon's delicious cocoa, fruity frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies and cream, and maple waffle flavors. So make sure you try them all. My grandson and I debate as to which is the best. It's a great debate. It's delicious, indulgent, and healthy, and I know you are a huge fan, James. I'm a huge fan, and I, 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 th- I think of it more as a – you know, think of it, if you get it, it's delicious. It's great as cereal, but, but it's a snack food. If you just put it in a bowl, all right, while you're working at your desk or, you know, you're on your computer, and like I said, it's 140 calories – you, you, you see, I could get fat at all. It's a nutritional powerhouse, and it's just a, a lot better for you than M and M's. And frankly, it tastes a lot better than M and M's. I don't even think against M and M's, but they're not very good for you, and they taste just okay. This stuff tastes great, and it, you know, and people are always looking for ways, particularly right after New Year's. You know, they want to eat a little bit healthier. They want to cut their caloric consumption. Well, this is what you do. You fill up on this, and it tastes good. And you keep keep you from wanting to eat bad crap for you. I, th- I think I think it's a staggering product. I really and the, do. And the and the variety is stunning. Yeah, I mean, you, like. so everybody. I mean, some people. I mean, if you don't like blueberry, then do peanut butter. If you don't like cocoa, then then uh, do cinnamon cookies and cream. I mean, there's just an incredible. Or put them all together. I want you to go to magicspoon.com/slash/warroom to grab a custom bundle of cereal. And start your new year off right. Be sure to use our promo code, WARROOM, at checkout to save $5 off your order. Now, Magic Spoon is so confident about this product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it, for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WARROOM and use the code WARROOM to save 5 bucks off or look for the link in our show notes. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, James, we have a good guest, and a good guest particularly for old guys like you and me, uh, Molly John Fast. Molly, you have an extraordinary range. Book author, blogger, writer for places ranging from Vogue to the Atlantic to the New York Review of books. But first, talk uh, talk a bit about The Daily Beast, where you are editor-at-large. Well, so now I do, I just do my my podcast at The Daily Beast, but I am at The Atlantic for writing. Okay. So I do a newsletter at The Atlantic called, just to plug my newsletter, because that's what it's all about, called Wait What? And it comes out once a week. And so, that's and that's part of the new newsletter uh, that Jeff Goldberg, correct. newsletters that Jeff Goldberg yes. launched. Uh, yes. which is a great addition to probably the best site, the best news site in America. I, I teach a class on po- the press and politics, and I even bought a subscription so all my students could uh, could read The Atlantic, and, and we'll have to add, make sure we get your newsletter. Yes, please do. Um, 
you know, I uh, – but let me go back to the Daily Beast for a minute because you, you wrote for them for a while. It's, oh, yeah. it, 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 you're still doing your podcast there. I, I think, uh, you know, again, talking about, about our age, that's not where we would automatically turn. But one editor said I think it's a sophisticated tabloid, lots of saucy stuff and some good political stuff. So I opened it today. And, man, I right away wanted to read about Prince Andrew and his Jeffrey Epstein-related <laughs> sexual assault and about the idiotic governor of South Dakota. It's an eclectic menu, but it's interesting. Yeah, they're doing a really good job there. And the editor-in-chief is a woman called Tracy Connor, who's really, really good and has been there a long time. And I think uh, – I mean, it happens to be a week when things in the UK are very exciting, right? We have uh, this very tragic Epstein story and Prince Andrew, and he's probably going to have a civil case against him. Was And that's very, that's good news. But then there's also, you know, Partygate. Uh, another where Boris the, party. Yeah. Right, where Boris has had yet another party and may, in fact, be forced to resign. At, um, I, though it seems unlikely, but uh, the Labour Party leader was saying that today. So there's exciting stuff in the UK, which we usually don't have. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting. And it certainly is going to be big crisis for the royal family, especially a civil case. And now you'll see that um, he and Prince Andrew's not has no way to fight this. So he's just going to have to write it. You know, the Queen is going to have to write a check for whatever. Virginia Dufresne wants. Because you know damn well he's not going to come to New York and face David Boyce. There's no way he's going to do that. Yeah, and I don't, and I think that there's no appetite in the royal family for fighting victims of sex trafficking, as well there should not be. Right, exactly. Let me, let me bring you across the pond. You wrote a piece uh, recently about Marjorie Taylor Greene, a crazy right-wing bigot, and, and you pose the question, is she just a nutty zealot or a craven opportunist or both? What do you think? I mean, I think that with all of these members of Trump world, uh, they're, bo- they're both, right? They're craven opportunists and also zealots. Um, you know, I don't know. She seems very Trumpy to me, like very similar to him in a lot of ways. She comes from rich family. She helicoptered into that. She wasn't from that district. She moved to the district. Uh, she's, you know, I mean, what's more important about her is the sort of, she's a sort of CPAC embodiment of CPAC. So she'll shop an idea just the way CPAC used to. Right. So you hear now she's doing all this genocidal language, which is really scary. And she's shopping the idea of a civil war. And so I would say she's she's interesting because she is, you know, the far right has is sort of leading the Republican Party right now. So it's important to watch those people to see what they do. Which sure is, James. So, so I, I want to do one B story, then I want to go to, to some other things with you. But I do, there was a story yesterday about Dr. Lewinsky being on uh, ABC's uh, The Morning Show, Good Morning America. And she's also being advised now, and I think wisely, by one of my best friends, Mandy Grunwald. And it got taken completely out of context and got completely into right-wing media ether, if you will. And I just think it's yeah. an important thing to know how – because um, they were tens of millions of people getting this erroneous information. 
And it, it, it's just the way this stuff works that fascinates me. This is the four pre is this is the four pre existing conditions clip. Right. This is how many people died. Uh, Yeah, it was misreported that that, that she said that 75 percent of the people uh, who are dying were vaccinated. And that's not what she said. Yeah. I mean, that was an interesting that was a really interesting case because it was an edited video released by an actual mainstream news organization and not by a far right organization. It wasn't edited. It was just clipped in a way that it it seemed misleading. Right. It's fun. You know what's funny about that clip is that it got people really mad on the right and on the left. Um, and I mean, look there. There is uh, the Bulwark had a piece about this yesterday. Uh, we have a fact problem in this country, right? We have a truth problem between the far right, all these websites, and you know, edited videos. I mean, these aren't even deep fakes. These are just videos that are cut, you know, a little bit cut. Uh, We have a real problem and we do need some kind of, we need some kind of, I mean, I, I, this thing I was reading was that Democrats should have something that where they work on figuring out, uh, you know, how to debunk some of this disinformation. Yeah. So, uh, Molly, you stand at a unique position in terms of media. I mean, you, you, you're weekly with The Atlantic, which is, you know, one of the most prestigious publications in, in journalism, been around since before the Civil War, I think. And, of course, you, you were very influential in the beast, which is more of a cultural site. And it, 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 it appears to me that the more successful people here cover news but cover culture much more than they would have done 20 years ago. And I think that the, the, even the New York Times does this. I, I couldn't run because I lost my partner or, you know, five recipes for this. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's really coming that culture is, I don't say infecting, I, don't, I think it's a bad thing, but journalism is, is really starting to cover culture more and more. Is that your observation? I mean, I would say it's like politics is, you know, it's that famous uh, Andrew Breitbart, and I'm not doing, you know, this is in no way right, uh, understand. an endorsement of Andrew Breitbart, but that, uh, you know, no, culture is downstream from po- politics is downstream from culture. And especially right now, when the Republican Party is almost entirely culture wars and not at all legislation, you can't cover politics without covering the culture, you know, the grievance culture. So, yes, I think so. And I think then also we're in a very nice period right now where we're not so close to the midterm. So there's room for books and movies and plays, which is nice. So, Albert? You know, another three months. Yeah. So, well, all right, I, 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 I want to talk to you a little bit. You, you've written very frankly and candidly about uh, your life, which is which is kind of interesting because you've had a, whatever you want to call it, you've had one hell of an interesting life for somebody in their early 40s and I, I would recommend that anybody read the book because it, it, it it's really about some extraordinary things that, that you've experienced. So, I, I, I want you to, so I was talking to Paul Begala yesterday, name dropped names. We were talking about these these January the 6th rioters. And he said that a lot of them are incels. And of course, me being a cultural buffoon, <laughs> what the hell is an incel? 
And of course, it, it's people who can't have, who want to have sex but don't, so they take it out on women and and, and everything else. And you know, you observe this kind of stuff. How, do you agree that this is some this is some kind of a problem in America that these people that can't get women to like them are just taking it out on everybody else in the country? I mean, I think a bigger problem is the misogyny. I'm, I, I think, you know, certainly there was a lot of writing about this idea of incels. And y- yes, sir, I mean, there, it's it's definitely a sect of the far right. But what was interesting with January 6th was you had, like, mother-daughter combos, right? You had fathers and sons. You had, I mean, you're seeing a lot of, like, family bonding crime going on. <laughs> So so I think in that sense, uh, it, it was really – and you had people coming on private planes. You had rich people. You had poor people. I mean, you really had a cross-section of the worst of America. And so I think it is really interesting that, uh, you know – I mean, the thing I think that I'm like the most struck by is how much violence against women is involved in all of this, right? Like we have – right now we have the – the Supreme Court is is – probably going to overturn Roe. They're looking at this Dobbs versus Jackson women's health. And we have, you know, uh, on New Year's Eve, there was an abortion clinic, a Planned Parenthood that in Tennessee that was um, burned down. I mean, we are literally in this kind of slow, you know, there's a lot, there was like a whole news cycle about civil war the last two weeks, right? And all these Canadian papers wrote op-eds about how what are we going to do if America falls into civil war? I mean, not a great, not a great period in American life. And I was thinking to myself, you know, there's already this kind of Cold War violence against women stuff happening and people aren't even talking about it. I mean, they burned down a Planned Parenthood. So uh, and and with a lot of these shootings, you know, they tend to have you know, he beat up the wife at home or he beat up the girlfriend. There's always sort of a, you know, kind of violence against women aspect. So I, I think it's I think that in that way, certainly it's it's important. Yeah. Uh, Molly, you wrote a delicious piece about your grandfather uh, and his oh, yeah. FBI file. He was a dangerous radical to J. Edgar Hoover, but I, I think you wrote that he was sort of a grumpy old Jewish guy to you. Uh, yeah. Tell us, tell us about that. So uh, my um, my father's father was Howard Fast, who wrote Spartacus and uh, a bunch of other books. Um, April Morning, and what else did he write? He wrote The Immigrants. He wrote a bunch of books. Uh, but Spartacus was sort of the thing he was the most famous for, and he was blacklisted. He went to jail for refusing to name names on the House on American Activities. And growing up, I always thought he was just sort of a, you know, I I knew I, he had this enormous FBI file. He I once went into the dining room when he was looking at it, and it was boxes and boxes and boxes. But I never really, I don't think I ever really understood, and I knew he had sort of been, terrible to my grandmother, but I don't think I ever really understood uh, his place in history and how important it was. And actually, what I think is sort of the most interesting is that, um, and Jelani Cobb from The New Yorker was telling me about this, was that he was actually really involved in sort of interesting stuff with like the Peekskill riots and 
um, trying to sort of desegregate the country. And and in this FBI file, I found that he had one of the things that the FBI was so mad at him for was inviting inviting African Americans to his house for dinner. And how when that was when was to, that, Molly? Circa what? In the roughly fifties. In the fifties. And yeah. that he was trying to destabilize the American country by mixing with African-Americans. And so I thought that was a really, and, you know, he was, uh, he was very tight with um, different uh, famous African-American poets and, and uh, musicians. And so it was this very kind of uh, interesting time because I didn't realize, I guess I didn't realize how unusual it was to not to to be uh to be so in, invested in in uh in the end of segregation at that time and so I thought it was really interesting I had a lot of respect for him when I read more about his file yeah um you you grew up in a unique family uh your mom is a famous author uh about written about uh, sexual, libera- sexual liberation, there were divorces, open marriages, and lots of writing talent in that family. How did all this uh, influence you, Molly, personally and professionally? I mean, I just think that I thought you could make a living doing this. Right. <laughs> Which ultimately is very unusual. You know, I thought you that people wrote books and they, you know, it was like being a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, I don't think that's really how it works. But that, so I think that's how I ended up being a writer. Um, I, you know, that's how, that's sort of what I would say, you know. Do you have another book in you right now? Yeah, I'm working on a book right now. Um that's sort of a memoir, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. I'm curious to know what you guys think of this because I feel like a lot of the political books kind of, kind of go very quickly. Like they're sort of, you know, they're, there's all, they never, like, you don't, you don't, I don't know. They're just sort of disappear. And I, I feel like they're most, everything moves so quickly that there's really, none of these political books have much permanence. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I'll, I'll turn it over to James. And Molly, I think the most permanent political book that I know, uh, uh, nonfiction, right. was Richard Ben Kramer that was written 30 years ago, What It Takes. And that goes to exactly right. what you're talking about. There was a permanence about it. It wasn't just the passion of the moment. It wasn't what happened in February as opposed to April. So I think you're right on to something. James, weigh in on that. Yeah, well, first of all, I, want to, I agree with you on, the, on What It Takes. is the, the single best campaign book by far, that, that I think is, has ever been written. Uh, yeah, but there have been some great political novels, All the King's Men. I mean, right, you know, novels, I, yeah. Last, yeah, which I mean, one yeah. of my favorites was The Last Right. But so how, because you, you book and you, you're very kind of frank about how you grew up and what you did and your sort of relationship. Did it come natural for you to write about this? Or did you go, did you go through some kind of a, angst or catharsis to get to that point where you were willing to, to share this with people around the country? I mean, what's nice about growing up with someone like my mom is that she could never say you can't write about this because she wrote about everything right. all the time. I mean, pathologically, you know, you go to Thanksgiving and the next day, it would be in the New York Observer. So 
uh, I had a kind of carte blanche. Now, I happen to not be, I happen to be a little bit more, I want to use the right word here. I, I'm, you know, I am not pathological like that. So I don't necessarily, I'm more careful about my own life and the lives of the people around me. But um, I know that you can do that. I mean, it happens to be much more fun to write about other people than it is to write about yourself because it's ultimately a very small, but, you know, for me anyway, it's a very shallow well. So um, I'm much more interested in writing about politicians or Louis Gomer or whoever. And also the other (laughs) thing, and I don't, know that this was always true and I'm curious to know what you guys think but it strikes me that even though it's terrifying and it feels like the world is uh, you know the world America is on the precipice of disaster at every minute there are some really unintentionally hilarious characters in this world so so just in case there's somebody under 50 (laughs) watching this show this show I'm not sure there is but if there are just to tell you that uh, Molly's mom, in case you didn't know, was the author named Erica Jones, who wrote a book called a Fear of Flying, which was hugely influential in basically the message told women to not be repressed by their sexuality, that they weren't really doing anything wrong, which I think is, is apparent, is a, is a really good message. And you know, yeah. I thought what we used to do. And, you know, particularly in South Louisiana, what, what we used to do is just torture the, the, these females to, to know we, for doing nothing wrong. And so I, I, I just want people to understand because we have a pretty educated audience, but maybe we didn't. So I just wanted to explain to people just briefly who, who, who your mother was. And, and she's still living, isn't she, Molly? Yeah, she is. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Still writing? She's writing. I, I mean, it's funny because I was thinking about it because Joan Dinian died and she was a peer of hers. And uh, Nora Ephron died. It's funny because it's like when my grandfather died, he was 87 and he was sort of old enough so everyone else had died. You know, his peers had all died and everybody kind of thought, like Herman Woke, it, everyone thought he was already dead. Which is sort of, I guess that's the goal, is to live so long that people think you're already dead. Except when you, you know, when you live that long and you lose all your friends, uh, I've had, I've known a couple of people, and you say, yeah, it's great to live long, but it can be lonely too. Right. No question, for sure. Well, I, you know, it, 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 it's amazing because so much from your, your grandfather, your mother, you're just different people, yourself. I, I mean, this been on the you know, cutting edge of many things in American culture from, you know, civil rights to sexual liberation to understanding the culture. I mean, it's, it, it's you know, I, I think that, and I mean this sincerely, not just because you're a friend of mine and I love you, but but I think what you're doing is is, is giving a, a unique, and you know, in some ways, I mean, you wouldn't agree with it, advantaged perch, maybe not, maybe it's a tortuous one, but certainly mm-hmm. it's unique. And I, I think you're, willingness to share this with us and, you know, people like my children, you know, who really look up to you. I, I think it's important work that you're doing. I really do. I, you know, I want to congratulate you on that. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, I don't know that there's any other choice, right? And I do feel like there's not, you know, we're in a situation now where, it, I mean, this could be our last election. I mean, Canada is running pieces about what happens if we go into a civil war. So I'm 
I, you know, it feels like a really important time to be in the discourse. Well, I want to encourage you, I agree with everything James just said, encourage you to write uh, not, not only about some of these Republican nutbags, but about some of the Quislings, the Kevin McCarthy's, the Lindsey Graham's. I mean, you have a touch and you can capture them. They are, they are in many ways just as evil as the, as the Marjorie Taylor Greens, in some ways more so. Yeah. So, yeah. But um, you, you have been a terrific guest. Uh, when's your book coming out? In, I don't know, not soon, not, not soon enough. <laughs> okay, well, well, if not sooner, you promise you'll come back if we're still around uh, when yes. it does come out, okay? I definitely will. And if you want to subscribe, if you want to subscribe to the newsletter, okay, wait tell us what? It's called Wait What? And it's at the Atlantic. Okay, Wait What? And the Atlantic. Uh, it's easy to do. Uh, so, Molly, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, this has really been a, a, a marvelous conversation. We appreciate it. it. It sure has, and thank you so thank you so much, Molly. You're a dear friend. I have great respect for you, and great more than anything, respect for your courage. So, thank you. Well, very mutual. So, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. <laughs> Hey, you know, James Carville, science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent, deep sleep is by lowering core body temperature. You'd be amazed. Sleep is an issue that I always worry about or I have worried about. Temperature-controlled sleep restores testosterone levels, repairs muscle after a hard day's work, and improves cognitive function, so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. And sleeping cool is good for everyone. You would agree, James. Not only do I agree personally, the, the, the single most determinative thing about how I feel during the day is how much I slept last night. And that's just not anecdotal information. There is study after study after study. And this helps. This is a really effective tool in your toolbox. But a but, but good night's sleep it is essential to feeling good and is essential to staying healthy. And this helps. I, I mean, it, it really does. And this is not just somebody popping off saying, well, I, you know, when I sleep well, I, I feel good. There, there's mounds of evidence to that. It's mounds. particularly important for us old timers. It's important right. for everybody. But as you get older, you really need it. Chili Sleeps right makes you. customizable climate-controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. And with the Uller and Cube sleep systems, you'll be using a hydro-powered temperature control mattress topper that fits over your existing mattress to give you your ideal sleep temperature. Whether you sleep hot or cold, these luxury mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep. They're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Chilly sleep can help make that happen. Then for an extra layer of comfort, they also make the chilly blanket the only weighted blanket that can also be paired with a control unit for the ultimate sweat-free sleep. So head over to chillysleep.com slash warroom to learn more and check out a special offer available exclusively for Politics War Room listeners and only for a limited time. That's chilly, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash warroom to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day or look for the link in our show notes. Okay, James, now 
one of our favorite segments. Actually, we have a lot of favorite segments, but we love to get our listener questions. They're always good. And the hardest thing is choosing from a, among a plethora of really, really good ones. But Pete, in Mundelein, Illinois, hope I pronounced that correctly. Maybe that's near where Mary grew up, but we'll What's find out. What's the name out. of the town? Mundelein. Or Mundelein, Illinois. Anyway, Pete asked a question. James, has the Republicans Party uh, members of Congress actually submitted any legislation centered around improving people's lives, not involving political party affiliation, since Biden took office? They block everything, but what have they actually submitted that would be a better way? They probably submitted something to not teach something that no one teaches in school called the critical race theory. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that they've done some goofy stuff that, that, or cut taxes. that doesn't, doesn't matter, but, but they don't have any. But what's the idea they have? What, what is, give me a, 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 what you would call a modern Republican idea? Nothing. Nothing. Like, it's just, you know, they used to, at least, you know, say you had to fight communism and, you know, lower taxes and regulation, of, you know, traditional values and that kind of stuff. They didn't go through that. They don't even go through the noise anymore. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of weird. And, you know, a good, unfortunately, a good part of the country seems to just be satisfied with this, you know, cultural resentment all the time. That, that what we know that the country is changing. And they hate to the change, so that much to let us know. Cut taxes, less regulations, worship Trump, and play the race card. That's right. um, that's and, that, and that's you really got the wrong the four horsemen. Put, right. put the first, put the last one first. Yeah. Okay. Uh, our next question is from Jake in Lyons, Colorado. I've been around Colorado a lot. I don't quite know where Lyons is, well, but we'll find out. Jake, write us and tell us where Lyons is. Uh, he said, why is one of the most pressing issues being, which he says is backlog at the IRS not being talked about? Millions of people have not received their tax returns for 2020. That also means no child tax credit. Jake, a good question, but let me tell you, it's not this current IRS's fault. The, the fault lies with mainly Republican congressmen who for years and years and years wouldn't increase and actually cut the IRS budget. And when they had pr as good an IRS commissioner as it has been since Sheldon Cohen and John Koskin, and all they wanted to do was harass him about some phony charge of targeting right-wingers for audits. It just wasn't true. Uh, and every, you know, every dollar, extra dollar you invest in the IRS, not only do you get your returns back better and more quickly, but you raise about five or ten bucks. So, so yes, it's a problem, but the fault lies with those who wanted to be demagogic and short-term and didn't adequately fund the IRS. I couldn't agree. And actually, I think Biden had a proposal to really increase the funding, enforcement, and to hire more people. All right? And, and if you read the actual text of the 16th Amendment, it couldn't be any more clear that, that people wanted an income tax, and they were very clear about it. The language of the 16th Amendment is very clear. And I, I'd, I'd like to ask some hiring lawyer... Or did they violate the 16th Amendment when they try to undermine our, our system of income tax? Because it's it's enshrined in our Constitution. Yeah, it is. James, um, Dave, in a city, I hope I pronounced this correctly. I think it's called New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, yeah, no, no. Let me, New Orleans, sorry. No. And Dave, now Dave has a claim to fame. Dave went to a party 
at your house about 10 years ago as a winner of a New Orleans Idea Village two-lane business competition. So he, he still remembers it. Here's his question. Nationwide, there are so many public school board volunteers quitting after receiving threats of harm to themselves or their family. Why isn't the Department of Justice making more of a public example of prosecuting the people who make these threats? This could go a long way towards shutting down the trend. Well, I think the Attorney General's addressed this, hasn't he? He has. And, and he has. Of course, such a great, and and you know, of course, when the school board has become the, the sort of center of, con, of, con, of cultural conflict in the United States. I mean, you can't go online without seeing these people having you know nervous breakdowns at school board meetings. But the one thing that we're not very good at, that they are good at, is they recruit candidates, funded, and they yep. try to take over a, a lot of these school books, and you know, and then they control the textbooks which is very important. And these are, these are real battles that are not going anywhere. And I don't think people of our persuasion or, you know, I know that you've been big on this correctly, these state legislatures being very important elections that we don't pay enough attention to. They put as much into these school board elections as they put into anything. They do. They, they really do. do. That and, that and uh, judges' races, they really, and, you know, they really do. And yes. You know, James, this goes back a long time. This isn't new. Back, you know, 50, 60 years ago during the civil rights era and the anti-communist era, it was uh, – they were book banning back then. Uh, they were getting rid of uh, teachers who talked about civil liberties. So it's not new, but it's insidious. It's dangerous. You're right. Mary Garland has talked about it as trying to do something about it. And, of course, what was the reaction of Republicans? They were outraged. You know, he's going after God-fearing Americans. You know, the, the whole concept of free speech in America has just taken a, a hit that we couldn't believe. I mean, first of all, you'd see it, you've always seen it in book burning on the right and, you know, for, you know forcing people this and not paying attention to this. But, but you've also seen more than would make you comfortable on the left. There are more young people. I think it was Etzel that wrote about this this morning, particularly like younger educated white females that don't believe that that believe that you 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 should suppress or outlaw you know speech that that you don't like be considered right. racist or misogynistic or something like that right and i don't think that's healthy i really don't i, I don't think that's a good idea at all james you are so right even the aclu which for years and years and years has been a great protector of civil liberties whether the attacks come from the left or the right even the ACLU has buckled on some of this stuff. Uh, really? And, uh, yeah. And, and I, I mean, really, I mean, they're still basically a very valuable institution. But um, I, they're, they're exceptions. Someone who, who incites violence, uh, you know, there are certain types of speeches that are just so terribly offensive. They're unacceptable, but not very many. Uh, but, I, I mean, of course, I mean, it's always been that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Right. And, I mean, there's a whole body of jurisprudence to, uh, on free speech, but I don't, how do you, you say racist free speech, well, I don't know, some people, you know, put racism to one one person, I just don't know who, who decides this, I just don't think this is a workable idea, but it looks like more people want speech controlled in this country than ever before I can remember, and I just, I just don't think it's a very good idea. <laughs> You know, it's not, and I. this goes back a long time. I was in college in the 60s. I went to Wake Forest, which was then a Baptist school, 
And they brought down uh, like the second secretary of the Soviet Union uh, embassy in Russia. And man, the right wingers went crazy. They said, honest to God, bring in a commie on campus who's going to expose. Well, he came on campus and I mean, he was devastated. In the, uh, he, he was stupid enough to have a Q&A. And I remember one guy asked a simple, one professor, Javon Tabibian, asked a simple question. It was, about, it was about Berlin. And he said, why is it people are only trying to get from the east to the west and not from the west to the east. And this second secretary was totally flummoxed. I think if you don't, you don't limit, you don't censor speech, you expose crazy speech, and in the end, you win. I, I, I agree. And, 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 and if you just, and of course, what, what happens is on these college campuses, it's, it's just, it's not worth it. If you do, you know, if you bring someone in that's controversial, it, professors and administrators and people say, yeah, yeah, you know, I agree with you in principle, but I don't want to, we don't go there. It's just going to cause a, a, a giant eruption here among the student body. Yeah. So therefore, it, it is, it, it, in a way, it's a form of censorship because people just shy away from it. I just don't want to fool with it. Yeah. Right? Just get somebody safe. And if you just keep getting people safe and you don't get people provocative or you don't give young people a chance to stand up just, just like the, the guy did at, at, at Wake Forest in the early 60s, to, to ask a question like that, you, you're missing a lot. And I, I just think that free speech is, is something that I've always taken for granted, but I don't anymore. It, it yeah. has become morally acceptable to limit speech. And and the problem is that well we should limit who who gets to define it. I mean, does do the student body at, at Swarthmore vote on what's acceptable speech or not? I don't know. I, I mean, the best way is to just leave the spigot open. I think let it out there and let people judge. Let the market. This is a place right. where I believe totally in the marketplace. Uh, and let the marketplace decide. Uh, I think it's worked for over two hundred years and it continue to work. Uh, Maureen in Syracuse, New York, asked, can we set the line of demarcation back to January 2017 when Kellyanne Conway spoke of, quote, alternative facts, end quote, when the inauguration numbers were being pushed? Should we have buckled in for years of lies leading to the big lie? Maureen, there's only one thing you got wrong. It goes back well before January 2017. Remember the birther issue? That was one of the most insidious lies uh, you've ever heard anyone tell Trump's entire adult life has been about lying. I mean, read the books by Tim O'Brien and others. Trump is a pathological liar. And I had a good lawyer friend say, you know, I wouldn't mind representing him on that. And I said, why? He said, because I don't think he's, I, he's at the point, I don't think he knows the difference between right and wrong. So, uh, yeah, uh, it began with Kellyanne Conway and this administration, but it well predates that. Yeah, but that was a, a, a pretty startling thing. I mean, you, you know, alternative facts. I mean, that was it was a it's, it's so bracing to hear that term, and because it it you know, of course, it's the ultimate oxymoron, right? The Earth is so much in diameter, you know, uh, pi r squared. Well, maybe there's something else. No, there's not. <laughs> right. There's no. Right. Oh, Alternate fact there, you know. Right. So I, I, I understand, but I, I, I'm a little bit sympathetic with our writer because that was it's certainly had gone on forever and ever and ever before. You, I can't 
recommend a book more than I can, Kurt Anderson's Fantasy Land, and just how we've always been suckers for, for this kind of stuff. But it, it, it is a little bracing for, you know, person, you know, close to the president to say something like that. I mean, it's, it was kind of, well, it's kind of unique. <laughs> to put it, was it true, mildly. but it was right. unique. James, the next, this is good. This is good for our show. The Reverend Greg in New Lenox, Illinois. This is the Reverend. On Christmas Eve, a parishioner emailed me to accuse me of making things political when I wrote to the congregation that it was the Christian thing to do to get the vaccine. I used to ask. Now I beg. We've hosted vaccine clinics in our church, and we have reoriented our lives around virtual and hybrid-style worship that accepts that some people are staying home out of fear of getting sick. We may never get them back. Did I become a priest just to bear witness to the church's slow demise? Boy, that is eloquent, Reverend Greg, don't you think, James? Well, I, I, d- d- thank you for your question. It's something I, I've actually thought long and hard about, Reverend. If you go to a site called America Magazine, which is the leading publication, I grew up and considered myself a Roman Catholic, which uh, is the leading Jesuit publication in the country, I interviewed, and I actually agree with you. I, 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 I think it is immoral to not be vaccinated. And, and I, I, I think I could, and as I told the host, if you gave me a big pen and a blue book, I could I could take a pretty good shot at in the tradition and and what we learn and what we're supposed to know and in the teachings that this is actually a a, a sin a grave sin. So I, I I thank the Reverend for his question. I in my opinion he's dead on. I've, I've thought about this. I've, I've interviewed about it, and it's it's not just a, a neutral decision. I think it, it is a horribly immoral decision to choose not to be vaccinated. I really do, and I think that's very steeped, and, and I'm sure the, the reverend's well-trained and, and thoughtful, and I, 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 I urge you to, to read my interview. I was actually pretty proud of it. I agree. It's a moral uh, as well as a health care uh, imperative, and uh, I must tell you, I'm, I'll tell you, Reverend Greg and James, I am very worried about this Republican Supreme Court knocking yeah. down the vaccine requirement, which is, which is, which if they, well, I won't attack them for doing it until they do it. But if they do it, uh, they've done a great disservice uh, oh, to, uh, to America. James, the next is from Aaron in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, the home of the great late Bob Healy. I love Jamaica Plain. He says, given the history of the Mars, the Mellons, the Scripps families, and how they devise tax-dodging schemes employed by so many ultra-wealthy American families to this day, what help is there ever of tackling income inequality in this country with facts such as these so ingrained in our modern politics? You got it right, Aaron. There is no way in the world you're going to tackle. There are a lot of things you've got to do to, 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 to minimize or at least close some of the tremendous income inequality gaps in America. You can't do it without talking about tax. And you can't do it without closing tax loopholes, giving the IRS, uh, IRS money to go after your tax cheats, and increasing rates, not to confiscatory levels, to levels that will make us still less tax than a number of other countries. And I see – I haven't read Ray Dalio's book. It's praised by everyone, um, it seems. And he says income inequality is a big problem. I want to know, and I, I admit I have to read you, is he for taxing himself more? Is he for taking away uh, uh, loopholes that uh, hedge funds and private equity firms uh, enjoy, carried interest? Uh, you can't do it without dealing with the tax side. Well, there was a, a, a symposium. I think it was at Davos. 
you know, on income inequality, but they said you can't talk about taxes. And it was a Dutch economist that said, I think the smartest thing in the subject I ever heard. He said, well, that would be like having a, a conference on firefighting, but you can't talk about water. Right, right, right. Which I thought was a really <laughs> apt observation. Where they get and say, "Yeah, it's a problem, but we, you know, we, we can't. We got to take that off the table. That's you can address it eighty-five percent through just that." And, and boy, when when you watch the the Sackler movie, you know, we had Alex Gibney on the crime of oh, century. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh man. And, and, you know, and, and, of course, Biden had these proposals to do something that went absolutely nowhere. Right, right. And, and I just don't think, and I think the problem, the inequality is going to build up, the, 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 the shutting people from participating in our democracy is going to build up. And when these things build up over a period of time, they tend to release themselves and not at ways that a lot of people would find advantageous and what we have in, in the country and just want to take this one thing because i'm, I'm, I'm very big it, it, we have a lack of order and people don't like that and even on issues like the border or crime all right i'm sorry it just it, it seems like there's that we're, we're losing order and you just add to that with this horrific gut-wrenching inequality you're going to add to that this this, this voter suppression People, you know, you and I are so too old. We probably won't live to see the. I think it's going to be the hard consequences of this. But it, 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 it but there's a there's a real toxic brew out there, and it's it's really unhealthy. And I, I really have difficulty seeing how how anything. And I think Biden is trying, and people understand it, but there's just n- nothing they can do. And you know. Tom Friedman had a column, and I, you know, and I saw the headline. I said, "Oh, this is typical, you know, bullshit." Actually, he, he had a little bit better point than than the, the, the more, when I read it. I became so. Well, you know, he's got a, he's got. A, he's talking about Israel, how they just were at this collapse point of you know, and then they put this kind of unity government together, and at least for the moment, it, it it's working pretty good. Yeah. I don't know if yeah. that, maybe we're going to have to do something like that. I don't, I've always been kind of disdainful of that, and I always thought it was a, you know, a, a, a kind of dream that, that that's not practical. It's probably not going to happen, but just what we got now is just, it's not working. It's just not working anyway. James, I had the exact same reaction to that column to start with. And I, I think if you tried something like that, it would be, it would be not only resisted, uh, it would be beyond that with the uh, far left and the much larger far right. But I think there's a much larger, uh, whatever one wants to call it, people who aren't in the far left or the far right. So I don't think it's going to happen, but um, boy, I tell you, I'd love to explore it. Yeah. I, I, so yeah. you had the same reaction I did. I said, oh, it's just typical kind of, you know. Right. Tom, right. you know, feel yeah. good bullshit. And I started reading it and I said, well, you know what? He's got a pretty good point there. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. And the Israel example was a good one. Hey, our final question. It's our final one, James. We just don't have time 
for all, all these great questions. I apologize particularly to Scott, uh, who wanted to talk about my wife's interview with Kamala Harris, so I'm going to get in trouble at home for missing you, Scott, but we'll come back with you uh, in the next couple of weeks. This is, this is from Jeff in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which I think is right near Rutgers, which, of course, was the team that Wade Forrest beat Brunswick. in the Gator Bowl. <laughs> but Jeff says, do you agree there's a difference between the political climates on public and private campuses, especially the faculty lounge bullshit? And if there is, how do we start chipping away at the belief that the best schools are private? How do we lift up public education and by extension lift up the voices of young people who may not fit in the ideological boxes that some in the intellectual left want us to fit into? I, that's a, 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 a good question. And, and of course the answer would be it, it's more on these kind of better pro- – but the gap is closing fast. And First of all, some of the schools that we consider public are, are, are quasi-private, the University of Michigan, the University of Virginia. I, I don't think the culture there – or you know, there's 63 schools in the American Association of Universities, seven of them in the UC system, all right? And the distinction between, like, the distinction between LSU and Tulane is, is the gulf is pretty wide, right? And haven't been both places, but, but, but in terms of, there's still more than you would be comfortable with, even on a place like LSU, which is a sprawling, definitely state university, southern university. It, but it, it, it's, it's an even increase in that. And Tulane is just, it's, it's over the top, uh, and. Uh, so the, the question is good. It, it, it's thoughtful. And the answer is the most part is observation is probably right, but there's a lot of places where it, 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 the gap is closing. Yeah, it is. And, and, of course, it's coming from a lot of places. I think, um, I think one of the great public universities in America is at Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina. It has been one of the great institutions. And there's some of that politically correct stuff there. But the much greater danger is the right-wing legislature uh, who's trying to clamp down on free speech and free education there. And I, um, I've cheered against Carolina in basketball, particularly James, for 60 years, although Dean Smith became a, a good friend. But I think what they're doing at Chapel Hill, which is different than what Jeff is asking, but I think what the um, what that right wing legislature is doing to Chapel Hill is is really uh, is really criminal. I mean, it's going to take one one of the great state universities in America, one of the great universities in America, and I think in five or ten years that's not going to be the case. I think you're right. I agree with you. It's a great university of, of not just state university, great university of any kind, yeah. and it, it's happening, and it, it's going to continue to happen. Uh, you know, and the, the, the deal with the, uh, Hannah Nicole Jones, which is, is like them getting involved in who gets tenure at the at the University of North Carolina is, I think you and I would agree that there's some things about the 1619 project that that we don't agree with, but the fact that you'd have somebody of this kind of talent and influence on your campus and you 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 run her off, it's pretty stupid. <laughs> it is. There's some things that most economics professors espouse that I don't believe in. There's some things that most history professors espouse I don't right. believe in. There are probably some things that some religion professors, uh, even with my lack of knowledge, I don't believe in. But you're right. I don't agree with all the 1619 Project, but she would have been a tremendous and a prized addition to Chapel Hill. Yes. I mean, she knows high in journalism. She obviously they're very influential. You don't have to agree with everything someone does, but she was definitely worthy 
in deserving attention, of course, they, they ran her off. Good job. <laughs> right, right. Good job. The only people you hurt was the students. And that's, that's, that's the people they care less about. Okay, next week, keep those, keep those emails and, Absolutely. Uh, coming because we love those questions. And I apologize no, for not getting The questions are just good. They, they, they diverse. Yeah. And, you know, do you pick them out or something? But, I mean, it, it, it really represents a good sort of geographical and topic matter. Well, the good thing. news is Dan Max calls them down to really good questions. The bad news is he sends me about, I don't know, uh, 16 or 17, and every damn one of them is good. So you right. got to chop that down. So, so uh, knowing you, you read every one of them. And I did read every one of them, as yeah. a matter of I fact. Did. And I curse at Dan as I eliminate each one. Right. I just say pick five out the hat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, James, instead of our usual outrage of the week, this week uh, we want to offer some tributes. Why don't you go first? Well, it's not an outrage. I, I, I want to talk about Bob Saget, and there's a story behind this, and I want to share it with our audience. In 2016, the Kennedy Center people decided that roasting was an art form, and they decided that I was going to be the subject of this roast. And, of course, because at the Kennedy Center, Bob Saget, was the MC. Uh, there will never be another roast at the Kennedy Center. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> I mean, David Rubenstein, who you know, is a, probably the, at the, the top of the kind of Washington establishment guy. He's the chairman of the Kennedy Center. <laughs> and if, if anybody could turn whiter than he is, he turned whiter. He'd get, he, he lost all blood color because, and they, well, actually Tucker Carlson, Al Sharpton, Paul, Tony Kornheiser, the, the insult comic dog. I mean, they had like everybody. And, and when I tell you it was raunchy, it was the other side of raunchy. But that's what these things are. And if you invite a skunk to your garden party, it's not going to smell good. And Saget was, uh, he was engaging. He was funny. He really knew how to run a rodeo. You know, I mean, he was a comedian, but he was the MC, and he could keep it moving, and he was a skilled guy. It, it so happened, I don't know, maybe a couple of months or six months after, Mary and I went to Four Seasons in Chicago on Delaware Avenue, and he was in there, I think it was his wife, maybe his child. And he said, look, I've I don't. I've probably done a hundred of these, or, you know, a lot of them in my life. This might be the best one I ever did. And he was just so gracious and friendly and stopped and talked to us. And he was, a, you know, the people love Bob Saget. I mean, they love the roles he played on these TV sitcoms and everything. And, you know, he was a, he was a good guy. I mean, I, I, and he was a very talented guy. And, you know, he ran a roast to me and made me like him even more. And believe me, he didn't pull any punches. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> but I didn't pull any punches either. I my best joke was, actually, Jeff Nussbaum gave it to me. I said, well, John F. Kennedy's rolling over in his grave right now, which can only mean one thing. Marilyn Monroe's now on top. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he was, uh, uh, you know, I didn't know him uh, like you did, but, um, you know, I certainly was a, was a fan. He had a good life. James, I want to pay another tribute to Sidney Poitier, the great actor who died at 94. I didn't know him, but I revered him for over half a century. I have never seen a more elegant human being. 
Go back and look at some of his old old films, which I did this week. Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, A Patch of Blue, Lilies of the Field, for which he won his first Academy Award. And I also watched last night uh, our good friend George Stevens Jr.'s uh, Jr.'s uh, two-part 1991 television series, Separate but Equal, with Sidney Poitier as Thurgood Marshall in the epic struggle to win perhaps the most important Supreme Court case ever, Brown v. Board, outlawing segregation in public schools. It's great to watch that, to watch Sidney Poitier again, and also to realize what the, the extraordinary struggle uh, that uh, Marshall and others went through, and, and the genius, by the way, of Chief Justice Earl Warren to produce a unanimous decision, particularly given this court. No actor gave us greater gifts over more than a half, half a century than the extraordinary and elegant Sidney Poitier. You know, I was thinking about this today. Jackie Robinson was almost a perfect choice to be the first black Major League Baseball player. Yeah. And I think Sidney Poitier was like, and of course, in the mind, he did it on his own talent, but he, he became the, probably the first uber-famous black actor and uber-good. And he had just a, a certain determination and dignity about him that was re- really remarkable in addition to just, you know, staggering talent that he had. I mean, yeah. But, but it was kind of, he was the, 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 right, the right person at the right time. And he and his friend Harry Belafonte were civil rights activists. Uh, were they? They, they, I no, mean, they no, really, they were not. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> no, they, I, they, uh, they were they were very aggressive. They used their fame and talent. Harry Belafonte, really talented guy too. Uh, but they were just good at it. Yeah, you know. It didn't, the only sad note here is that, you know, in his, in his final days, and he had a great life. He had a long life and a great life. The only sad night here, uh, note here is to watch these voter suppression efforts, uh, uh, which he thought, uh, you know, had ended uh, 60 years ago. To, but to, to guys like that, that's, the right to vote is everything. It is. It's everything. Sidney Sydney Poitier, rest in peace and thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Magic Spoon and Chili Sleep in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. Now, to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another program as we continue our War Room planning.